Would you stand in the presence of God's word? So Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord, and he gathered 70 elders of the people and placed them all around the tent. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. And when the spirit rested upon them, they prophesied, but they did not do so again. Two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other named Medad, and the spirit rested on them. They were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent and so they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, son of Nun, the assistant of Moses, one of his chosen men said, My Lord Moses, stop them. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, and that the Lord would put his spirit on them? And Moses and the elders of Israel returned to the camp. These are the words of life. Well, it does kind of feel like I'm having that weird dream again where I'm back at Boston Avenue, <laughs> except it keeps going and I haven't awoken, awakened from it. So it's my pleasure to be back here and just to be reminded of what a wonderful, enthusiastic spirit there is in this place and to be led in worship by such great leadership, both musically and otherwise. So let's talk a little bit about numbers. I don't know that anybody says, oh, gosh, my favorite Bible verse is numbers, mm -hmm, numbers. I don't see a lot of samplers embroidered on kitchen walls from numbers. But numbers is cool, you should look into it. It's the Moses Cycle 2.0. It's more about Moses than what you learned in Vacation Bible School. So I studied a little bit for today. I thought that would help. I read the commentary of Dr. Thomas Dozman, who is at United Theological Seminary at Dayton, Ohio. And he writes that we think this part of Numbers is probably from about the 600s BCE. And you know what was going on then, the Babylonian exile. The end of the Babylonian exile is about the time that scholars predict that this was being written. This time when the very smartest and most productive of the chosen people were more or less kidnapped by the enemy and taken to a foreign country. And they were, they were tapped for their, their brawn and their brains, their know-how, so that the civilization there could improve. But then King Cyrus of Persia came along and said, new sheriff in town, I'm gonna send all the chosen people back home. So we like King Cyrus of Persia. So they returned to the promised land. But this is, this is a time when the story was being retold about what was going on with Moses, decades after he had freed folks with God's help from Egypt and they were wandering in the wilderness and really trying to get things right. Dozman says this is a section on murmuring. We translate that as complaining. It's the people following Moses who are saying, those people aren't doing this right. These people aren't doing that right. We need something to eat, all that kind of stuff. 
we're getting more and more divine instructions as we go along. So 70 elders are chosen, and they are placed around the tent located outside the camp. God descends in a cloud, takes some of Moses' spirit, some of God's own spirit, and places it on the 70, causing them to prophesy momentarily. We soon find out this charismatic power to prophesy cannot be completely controlled or restricted because we meet our new friends Eldad and Medad who were not within the special tent where the power of God had landed but instead got some on them just by standing nearby. These two represent the uncontrollable nature of God's power that might go over boundaries sometimes. So Moses needs to figure out what to do. Even though Moses has done such a good job so far, the people around him are still struggling and still asking questions and still trying to find out how to interpret how to live by the covenant. So Moses remarkably stands up for Eldad and Medad and says, I wish everyone here had as much enthusiasm as these two guys. Or as it says in the International Children's Bible translation, are you afraid for me? I wish the Lord's people could all prophesy. I wish the Lord would give his spirit to all of them. And as I have translated it and repeated it, wouldn't it be great if everyone had this much enthusiasm? Now you all know a lot of Greek words because you've had so many scholarly pastors in your pulpit. So you remember that enthusiasm comes from the Greek words en and theos, in God. So if you are enthusiastic, God is in you. God has inflated you like a helium balloon. God has filled you up. You have, as they say in French, inspiré. You have inspired. You have inhaled. You have inhaled the very presence of God. If you are enthusiastic, you are automatically manifesting the spirit and presence of God. On Pentecost Sunday, we do remember when the Holy Spirit came to the church, when the tongues of fire appeared over the heads of all present, and they received the Holy Spirit. And we call that the beginning of the church, the birthday of the church. Not the birthday of Boston Avenue, but the birthday of the capital C church. This was when it got started officially. Without the Holy Spirit, we are nothing, because the Holy Spirit is the very presence of God. We need that inspiration. We need that breath to survive. It's God as close as your very breath. It's not God way up there in the sky, but God right here, as close as that next breath you will take. The Holy Spirit is the Ruach that blew over the 70 elders back in Numbers. Oh, I mean the 70 elders plus me, Dad, and Eldad, who weren't supposed to be included. Dr. Dozman says these two men's story illustrates how the boundaries of even minimal forms of hierarchy can be broken immediately by the uncontrollable spirit of God. The role of Moses is something all of us leaders should notice. We should take from his model that we should promote and recognize such power in unexpected places rather than view it as a challenge to our own authority. Wouldn't it be great if everyone had this much enthusiasm, Moses says? Who cares if they were in the original Broadway cast? We'll take them on. There's a role for everyone. Thinking about my faith journey, which is always hard to condense in a 
20 minute or less period of time, I thought of a few key things I wanted to share with you. In thinking about this exclusion inclusion thing, I have said many times, and we'll say it again today, as a kid growing up at Boston Avenue and as a teenager and a youth and a young adult and I don't know, whatever they call all those ages these days, I never felt like I could not be a minister because I was a girl. I never felt anything but encouragement by the lay leadership, the ministerial leadership, and especially Dr. Biggs. Uh, when I grew up and decided to go to seminary, this church supported me in more ways than one, and I'm very grateful for that. And when I became the intern here, I felt nothing but God, uh, let's see, Dr. Biggs, I just about called him God. Dr. Biggs. <laughs> I felt the nudge of God and I felt the nudge of Dr. Biggs all at the same time. Gently on my back saying, stand up, you can preach, you can go forward, let me put you forward. And I was not the only female staff member for whom he did that. Um, so we all thank you for that very much because there are still pastors who are not as forward thinking. Um, so I never felt anything but encouragement from God and from Dr. Biggs and from all of you who were here. But when I left this place, when I was outside of this place, I got flack. I want to tell you about that stuff. These are good stories. They were hard at the time, but now they're stories that make you go, really? I can't believe that happened. When I was in college, well, I'll tell you a fun story and then I'll tell you the hard story. When I went to college, I, I graduated from Booker T. Washington High School where I was in the ethnic minority, which was a great experience for me to have. I went off to college to Washington University in St. Louis where the majority of students were Jewish. And that was a great experience for a Christian person to have. I learned a ton about Judaism. I made Jewish friends and I dated one Jewish guy. And I remember calling home and saying, well, I've had a couple of dates with a guy that I met. He's in the acapella, the men's acapella group, and he's pre-med, and he's Jewish. And I remember my mother saying, you're gonna marry a Jewish doctor. <laughs> <laughs> and she didn't really say it like Rhoda Morgan Stern, but it sure landed that way on my ears. You're gonna marry a Jewish doctor. And I could hear her, I went on to tell her about my week and so on, but I knew she was just sitting there going, uh-huh, uh-huh, planning the wedding with Dr. Biggs, the rabbi, the hapa that we used from Fiddler on the Roof just a couple of years before. And so that relationship didn't work out, and I was a little bit sad about that, but there would be another relationship. Um, Nice-looking guy, very tall, lived down the hall in my, ooh, co-ed norm. Um, and he was a nice Christian church-going boy, nice Christian church-going young man. And I thought, well, maybe, hey, maybe this will work out. We were dating during the time when I was really discerning my official call to ministry, and did I really want to do this? Did I really want to graduate from college with my French and International Studies degree, do a 180 and go to Perkins School of Theology and get a degree in theology? And I told him, I am going down to Dallas to do a look at the school weekend. And he seemed upset about that. But I went anyway. And when I came back, 
He said, well, what did you think of the school? Oh, it was great. They had this, and we, I met this person, and they this thing, and they did this program, and oh. And he said, are you planning to go down there to find yourself a preacher husband? <laughs> and I said, no. And he said, so you're going down there to be, you want to be a minister. And I said, well, yes. And he said, you are an evil, prideful woman. Shame on you. That relationship didn't work out either. (laughs) (laughs) And when I got to seminary, I had one classmate who the very first week said, I want to know why you think you have a right to be here. It's all summed up in the words for me, God breathed. God breathed. The Bible is God breathed. Why do you feel like you have a right to be here? That friendship didn't really work out so well either. And we were always friends, but I always knew, I think we're going to have to agree to disagree on some things. Sometimes I feel sort of, well, I don't know, it's sort of accidental discrimination, I guess, when I run into someone maybe 115 years old, usually a man at a wedding or a funeral or something, somebody who comes up to me and says, I've never seen a girl preacher before. And I want to say, where have you been since 1956? (laughs) Methodists have been including women since 1956. The other thing people sometimes say, especially a 115-year-old man will say, you're a lot prettier than most of the ministers we've had around here. And I feel like saying, tell me something I don't know. (laughs) I've never said that. That would be rude. (laughs) But it would be hilarious, too. What I've started saying is, it's not a beauty contest. It's not a beauty contest. Uh, We went to school for this, and it's not a beauty contest. So some people don't know what to do with a girl minister. When you're 44, you, don't, you shouldn't be called a girl anymore, you're a woman. But people don't know what to do with a woman minister, but we do in the Methodist Church, and we certainly have at Boston Avenue. So being sort of a, I don't know, third-generation L-dad or me-dad, I guess I'm Mrs. L-dad, um, I, I resonate with that story of maybe being excluded, although that feeling has fortunately been foreign to me, and it's just been a factor of getting out of my usual circle uh, when people seem to have trouble with women as ministers. Well, if you're just tuning in, you probably don't know that uh, Dr. Bill Tankersley retired last week, and I think I see him over there. I think he's here. Um, (laughs) And I was here. I was here last week. I was here last week. I sneaked in right before the sermon, and then I left, and I had this resonating story of, if I hear you crossing the Red River before June 1st, you will not work at Boston Avenue. Uh, but I didn't talk to anybody, and I, I left before anyone noticed I was here, and it was a wonderful closing sermon. I just thought, I want to see what Bill's going to say on the very last time. So Bill's been here for 25 years, and I get to follow in his footsteps, and that is no small task. My introduction came to Bill came in about 1981 when my sister was ninth or 10th grade, I guess, and went to district camp and came home and said, well, at Camp Egan this week, we had in our small group two leaders, Bill and Ruth. We were the Bill and Ruth group. 
So it was Bill Tankersley and Ruth Wilson Geeson uh, who were her adult sponsors. And Reverend Todd Spencer was in that small group too. So um, lots of you know him. Who's, he's gone on to Colorado to be a minister. But anyway, we heard that Bill was coming to this church in 1992 and we said, oh, that's, Kat, that's the Bill and Ruth guy. That's Kathy's uh, camp counselor. Well, he's gotta be a cool person. Little did we know that his enthusiasm for ministry and caring were beyond the norm. He's one of those people who cries when you cry and laughs when you laugh, much the way I think God does with us. I think God cries when we cry and God laughs when we laugh. That's two clergy people I've equated with God today, so you're welcome. I will say one little housekeeping item as I take on this very big job of visiting hospitals and doing a lot of the funerals. If you have a crisis in your life, please, if you want to put it on Facebook, fine, but don't rely on that to get the word to me or to the staff. I speak from experience. If I don't happen to scroll past your post or if I take a much-needed break from Facebook because I have a love-hate relationship with it, and you put it on there and you expect the church to read it, we may just read it, but it would be so much better if you called the church and said, I'm in the hospital, my loved one's in the hospital, or we've had a death, or email one of us, somebody will get the message to me or to whomever it needs to go to. So I think that's the last item on your outline. Don't rely on putting it on Facebook. Well, I worked six years on staff here my last time around and then was sent to St. Stephen's for seven years. That's uh, one of, at the time, four congregations in Norman, not McFarland, the great big one where all the college kids went, but a smaller one where all the professors went. So it was a very intellectual congregation. I was corrected very often, having people with PhDs in a lot of the stuff that relates to what I know. They kept me on my toes. Um, But I learned also through my, one of my two right-hand ladies, Kay Antonoro, who was Kay Freeman, who was the daughter of Panthea Freeman, who was Bill's beloved Sunday school teacher that you heard about last week and in the Word. So Kay Freeman Antonoro uh, knew all about Mr. and Mrs. Tankersley, Bill's parents. Her parents had been at McFarland for many years and later in life had switched over to St. Stephen's, much as the Tankersleys had done. So she had the institutional history that included the Tankersleys, and she reminded me, I think they have both passed away, and they both have niches in our columbarium. We had a columbarium, too. And at some point, the four Tankersley children, Bill and his three siblings, decided we need to have a service of inurnment. Uh, we have kept hold of these cremains for a long time. Sometimes that happens, you, especially with a lot of siblings, you say, well, who's, who's going to take the remains? And so they wound up at Bill and Karen's house. And I don't remember how my mother got in touch with him, but somehow she said, oh, I forgot to say, of course, Bill had a crisis and couldn't come. Bill had to do a funeral or something, and so he couldn't come on the date that the family had selected to do the inurnment. So my mother crossed paths with Bill and said, I'm going over there anyway to see Amy. I would be happy uh, to take those cremains over. If you 
unless one of your sisters or brothers wants to do it. No, no, that would be fine. So my mother arrived for her visit, and I went outside of the church to meet her, and she said, I have Mr. and Mrs. Tankersley in the car. <laughs> and she had fastened Mrs. Tankersley into the seatbelt beside the driver's side and Mr. Tankersley on the passenger side. And I said, you didn't have to buckle them in with seat belts. And she said, you may laugh at this, but I just thought about these two people going home. And these two people, I know they're not really in the back of the car, but these two wonderful Methodist people who raised one of our pastors, making that trip back down I-44 spiritually to the place of their final rest. And I just wanted to do them that respect. Wouldn't it be great if everyone had that kind of enthusiasm for people in need, for respecting the people you love, for respecting other people's families at a time of death? That congregation did a great job of welcoming me to their church. I was a complete stranger when um, I became their pastor. I learned later that they had gotten on the internet and watched a sermon of mine from here. And they said, okay, I think we like her. I think we like her. I think it's gonna be okay. But even though they were probably not totally convinced since I was a complete stranger, they came to annual conference on the night we had the ordination service. I was being ordained just days before I went to be their pastor. 15 to 20 of them showed up and sat through that two hour long service for me. For me, they didn't know anybody else on the slate that night. And I walked out into the Family Life Center where everyone was greeting and having punch and cookies. And of course, I saw a lot of you from Boston Avenue who'd come for me too. But I saw these 15 people, I saw Kay there and I thought, well, she's standing with all these folks, they must be St. Stephen's people. They said, we're here to support you. We're here to honor you. We're here to bring you into our church. Wouldn't it be great if everyone had that kind of enthusiasm? They did it again this last week. I saw them do it. They've had an intern from seminary, and she was commissioned the same night Ben Pascoe was commissioned. And they all showed up and sat through the whole service, and they were just so loving and gracious to their Emily that they were saying goodbye to. This was a church that was very, very active. Um, they, they had their own way of doing things, and you guys have your own way of doing things, and I'm preaching to the choir, I'm preaching to the enthusiastic, I'm preaching to the people who really care, but I didn't find many people in my time at St. Stephen's who said, I used to come there, but I don't really get anything out of it. <laughs> I don't really get much out of it when I come to church. I hear a lot of people who don't go to church saying, I tried to go to church, but either I don't get it, or I just am not fed. I'm not fed. I don't get anything out of it. Well, don't forget that it's not always about you and what you get out of it, consumerized society. It's about what you put into it. And if you're really paying attention and you're really open to what's going on, you will receive the presence of the Holy Spirit every time you come to church or every time two or more of you are gathered. If you're really open to it, you will realize that you are re receiving the enthusiasm that it requires 
to be a good Christian and to just get through life, it's not always about what you get out of it. It's what you come here and put into it. And what gives you the power to put stuff into it is God's spirit that goes into you. The 70 elders could tell you that. Eldad and Medad could tell you that. They all got some on them. They all got some spirit on them. And they went out immediately and prophesied. When you come, you're supposed to get your tank filled, yes. And that's what everyone here tries to do. But then you're supposed to go spend your tank, and then you come back and you get it filled again. Maybe if you don't get anything out of it, you're not burning up enough of your tank. I don't know, I'm not talking to anybody in, in particular, but it's just an idea. Wouldn't it be great if everyone had as much enthusiasm as all of you do? and as St. Stephen's does, and so many other people do, who say, I'm here, I'm ready to help. What can I do? How can I get involved? How can I take what I've had and experienced here and go out into Tulsa and make this town a better place? Wouldn't it be great if everyone had that kind of enthusiasm? Mother Teresa wrote about a time when a man came to her place of hospice and said, Mother, there is a Hindu family living down the road who has eight children and they are on the brink of starvation. Is there anything you can do? And she said, I'll see about it. She grabbed a big bag of rice and went walking down the road to where they were. She arrived at the home and she delivered the rice and said, this is from us. May you go with God's blessings. May you be fed. And the mother said, thank you very much. And she set the bag down and opened it, and she started dividing it out and putting some into another bag, scoop after scoop after scoop after scoop. She looked at Mother Teresa and said, I'll be back. And she took the bag, and she was gone for 30 minutes or so. When she came back, Mother Teresa said, Where did you go? Where did you go with this rice? And she said, There is a Muslim family down the road. They have eight children. They are on the brink of starvation. They are hungry too. So it was my responsibility to share. In this world of fear and suspicion and paranoia, wouldn't it be great if everyone had that kind of enthusiasm? Amen.